You're listening to the Study Legal English podcast, helping lawyers and law students become fluent in legal English. For more information, visit studylegalenglish.com. Hello and welcome to episode 78 of the Study Legal English podcast. I am your host, Louise, and today we are looking at the civil trial. Before I get started, I want to mention italki. Italki is a platform where you can find lots of native English teachers, including me. If you're very busy, if you're a lawyer, then it's quite ideal for you because you can take classes whenever you want. You could take them at home before you go to work or even at the office during your lunch break. And you can take classes regularly. You could take them every day if you like, or you could simply take them as and when you need them. For example, I regularly teach a commercial lawyer who works a lot with contracts and we look at particular contract clauses, how he can, he can improve the language used in the contracts, how he can draft them more clearly, what particular words mean uh, particular things. Sometimes I teach lawyers just for a few lessons. For example, I had a lawyer who wanted to prepare for his first cross-examination in English. He was a litigation lawyer, wanted to improve his litigation skills, and we took a couple of classes to do that. So if you're curious about italki, go to go.italki.com forward slash study legal English, and you'll receive $10 for free when you purchase your first class. So I will, of course, leave the link in the show notes. So in the last episode, we learned about how a defendant can respond to a claim which is served on him and certain pre-trial procedure. Today, we're looking at the trial itself. We'll be looking at some of the differences between trials which are allocated to the small claims track as opposed to the fast track and the multi-track as well as the overall general structure of a civil trial. Before we get started, I've got a question for you, and that is, in your country, how does a party appeal against a decision? Send me in your answers to louise at studylegalenglish.com, or you can leave a message below if you're watching this on YouTube, or if you're listening on the Study Legal English website. So now let's get started. What are the differences in trial procedure depending on the track allocation? When a case goes to trial, the procedure differs slightly depending on whether the case has been allocated to the small claims track, the fast track or the multi-track. The procedure used in the small claims track is aimed at being cheaper and simpler than the other tracks. The procedure used is much more informal than in the other tracks and sometimes people informally refer to the small claims track as going to the small claims court. Even though it's not actually a separate court, they're simply referring to the informal procedure which is used on this particular track. So with small claims, in order to keep spending to a minimum, courts actively discourage parties from having legal representation. Parties must pay any legal fees themselves and any winning party cannot claim legal costs from the losing party. 
Therefore, parties often represent themselves instead of instructing a solicitor or a barrister. And when they do represent themselves, they are known as litigants in person. To keep trials simple, the process is generally more informal than the procedure used in the other tracks. The case is normally heard in a small room with just the judge, some of the court staff, and then the claimant and the defendant. Although, of course, the court hearing takes place in open court, it's unlikely that many members of the public or many members of the press will attend. In some instances, even the claimant and the defendant don't attend the hearing, and they are simply notified of the judgment via a letter in the post. In many small claims, the only witnesses are the claimant and the defendant. They don't normally swear an oath or make an affirmation when giving evidence, and instead the parties simply state their case in quite a conversational, informal way. However, if the judge suspects that one of the witnesses, one of the parties, is indeed bending the truth, he may ask them to go under oath. He will remind them that giving false evidence whilst under oath constitutes the criminal offence of perverting the course of justice. With small claims, the judge normally asks questions to the parties rather than them cross-examining each other. On the other hand, trial procedure for cases allocated to the fast track or the multi-track are not as simple and straightforward and informal as those allocated to the small claims track. On these tracks, it's the norm to have legal representation and the winning party can claim costs from the losing party. Trials are more likely to be held in a larger court and more likely to be attended by many members of the public and the press. The trials last for longer, there are stricter rules on evidence and parties normally call a number of witnesses. With these differences in mind, now let's look at the overall structure, the general structure of a civil trial. What is the structure of the civil trial? The civil trial follows pretty much the same structure as that used for criminal trials. And if you're not sure what this is, I recommend listening to podcast episodes 68 and 69 to brush up on your knowledge uh, of this particular topic. As in a criminal trial, in a civil trial, there are opening speeches, the questioning of witnesses, closing speeches and a judgment. So let's look at these in more detail. Opening speeches. The first thing that happens in a civil trial is the opening speech from the claimant, in which the principal facts of the claimant's case are set out. We also use the term opening speech in criminal trials. However, here it will be the opening speech for the prosecution, not the claimant. In most civil cases, the opening speech of the claimant is quite brief because the parties and the judge will already be aware of what the case is about. And in civil cases, at least in most civil cases, unlike in a criminal case, there is not a jury present which needs to be filled in about the background of the case. 
In some civil trials, especially those allocated to the fast track and the multi-track, sometimes opening speeches are dispensed with completely, especially when there has been some previous hearings beforehand. The claimant's case. So after the opening speech of the claimant, the claimant's case is presented. This is the same also in uh, criminal trials, although here, of course, it's called the case for the prosecution, not the case for the claimant. In this part, the claimant's evidence-in-chief is presented. This is their main evidence which supports their case. This is normally quite a straightforward and simple process involving any witnesses simply confirming their name and their address and swearing that the contents of their witness statement is true. It's so straightforward because in civil trials, most of the time, witness statements stand as the evidence-in-chief. And before the trial itself, in the pre-trial process, parties will have already exchanged witness statements and the judge and the parties will already have read through these documents. So there's no need to elicit the facts of the case uh, in great detail in the examination-in-chief. However, in more complex cases where a full examination-in-chief is necessary, the counsel for the claimant will ask open questions to his witness in order to elicit the facts of the case. Open questions begin with who, what, where, when, why, how, and they encourage the witness to tell a story, to tell their version of the facts. After the evidence-in-chief, the witness will be cross-examined. This is where the other side, the other party, the opposition, in this case the defendant or the counsel for the defendant, asks questions to the claimant's witness. Here, the other side is challenging what the witness has said in his witness statement or in the examination-in-chief. The goal is normally to undermine the witness, to cast doubt on the witness's credibility, so that the judge disbelieves the facts put forward by the claimant. To do this, the witness is asked leading questions. This is where the witness is led to give a specific answer. After the cross-examination, the witness may be re-examined by the claimant. This means that the claimant can ask questions to the witness again. However, this time questions are limited to only matters which arose in the cross-examination. For example, if a document wasn't quoted correctly in the cross-examination, this can be corrected in the re-examination. At any point throughout the case, the judge may ask questions to either of the parties in order to clarify points. The defendant's case. The next part of the trial is the defendant's case or the case for the defendant. This may begin with an opening speech, although it's not very common to do that. The defence witnesses will be called and the same procedure as was used with the claimant's witnesses will be used. Let's look at cross-examination in a bit more detail. I said that in cross-examination, leading questions are often used. What do I mean by this? Well, let's imagine a claimant is suing a doctor for medical negligence. 
the counsel for the claimant must do everything possible in the cross-examination to cast doubt on the credibility of the defendant's evidence. And instead, the claimant should try to elicit answers in support of the claimant's case. The counsel for the claimant might ask questions like this. Mr Matthews, you graduated from the London University Medical School, right? On the 20th of February 2019, my client came to see you, complaining of severe chest pain, correct? The common procedure any competent physician carries out to properly evaluate patients' complaints is to take a detailed medical history, correct? And would you agree that a doctor who failed to perform a physical examination of a patient who made these complaints would be in violation of the General Medical Council's Code of Conduct? So as you see, this technique leads the witness to an answer which is exactly what is needed in cross-examination. Closing speeches. After each party has presented his or her case, the counsel for the defendant and counsel for the claimant will give a closing speech where they summarise their case and what they hope to achieve. The judgment. Following the closing speeches, the judge will deliver his judgment. This will either be immediately or for more complex cases at a later date. The judge will state who wins and also give reasons for his judgment. In civil cases, we do not say that the defendant was guilty. Instead, if the defendant has lost the case, we say that the judge decided against the defendant or the judge decided in favour of the claimant or the defendant was found liable. If the claimant has lost the case, then we say the judge decided in favour of the defendant or decided against the claimant, or that the defendant was not found liable. Remedies. If the judge has decided in favour of the claimant, he will also decide what remedy to award and the exact terms of such remedy. A remedy is something which a claimant seeks in order to resolve the dispute or make good the harm caused. To seek means to look for and is a common collocation with remedy, to seek a remedy. When the judge decides the remedy, a common way to say this is that he awards a remedy. Interestingly, in British English, it's more common to say award a remedy, whereas in American English, it's more common to say impose or order a remedy. It's important to note that in civil claims, the judge awards a remedy, whereas in criminal cases, a judge imposes a punishment or a sentence. With that said, however, a judge does, in civil cases, have the power to impose, in very limited circumstances, punishment on a party. For example, if they are found in contempt of court. This is a criminal offence whereby a party disobeys an instruction from the judge. So what are the common remedies in civil trials? The most common remedy is an award of damages. 
This is where the court orders the defendant to pay an amount of damages to the claimant. Damages are calculated in different ways depending on the specific type of claim and it is for the judge to decide the exact amount and the exact terms. For example, whether the amount should be paid as a lump sum or whether it should be paid in instalments. Pay attention to the vocabulary here and make sure that you don't say the judge awarded damage. Damage is a different word from damages. Damage means harm, whereas damages, which is always in the plural, means compensation. If damages are inadequate, meaning that they do not sufficiently rectify or resolve the dispute or problem, the judge also has the discretion to award what we call equitable remedies. There are four common equitable remedies, and these are an injunction, specific performance, rescission and rectification. Firstly, an injunction is an order to do or to not do something, and we use the verb to grant with an injunction. The court granted an injunction to the claimant, ordering the defendant to stop construction, for example. Secondly, specific performance is a court order for a party to perform his or her contractual obligations. We use the verb to order and to grant with specific performance. For example, the court ordered specific performance of the sale of goods contract. Thirdly, rescission aims to put contracting parties back to their pre-contractual position. It's not simply terminating a contract, but trying as far as possible to put parties back in the position that they were in before they entered into the contract. So it's as though they never entered into the contract in the first place. It's common to use the verb to grant or to order with rescission. For example, the claimant was granted rescission of a contract for the purchase of a house. Finally, rectification is a court order whereby a document is changed in order to better reflect the intentions of the parties. For example, if a contract contains a mistake, the parties may ask for rectification, whereby the original contract clause is substituted with alternative wording, which really actually reflects the true intentions of the parties. We use the verb to order with rectification, For example, the court ordered rectification of the contract. What about costs? Once the judge has awarded the remedy, he must then deal with costs. This includes any legal fees, any fees related to legal services, for example, the fees charged for legal advice. The general rule in civil claims is that the losing party has to pay the costs of the winning party, but the judge does have quite a wide discretion to depart from this rule. For example, the judge may decide that the losing party should only pay part of the winning party's costs, or that each party should simply bear their own legal costs. Once costs have been decided, this is the end of the trial. Of course, if a party is not satisfied with the outcome, then they may wish to appeal. But we'll be dealing with that in another podcast episode. 
Great. So that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it and you found it useful. Don't forget to send me in your answers to this question. In your country, how does a party appeal a judgment? You can send me an email to louise at studylegalenglish.com or simply leave a comment here below on YouTube or on the Study Legal English website. As always, if you're a member, then you can access your member benefits at studylegalenglish.com forward slash episode 78. So thanks for listening and see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Study Legal English podcast. If you really want to get ahead, why not become a member and gain access to many learning resources? Visit studylegalenglish.com forward slash pricing.